Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, the trip from the Bronx to Dallas is pretty long. <laughs> it's nice to get here eventually. Um, being a member of the National Board of the World Affairs Council is actually a very high honor uh, and a very important one. The discussion of public affairs in this country has sunk to a pretty low level, and the discussion of foreign affairs to the lowest imaginable. Uh, there used to be something in the United States we call the learned public. It's still there. It just nobody speaks to it, and they don't speak to each other. Uh, the World Affairs Council is a place where that can happen in foreign policy, and so I'm very proud to be par part of that. That was actually one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, The Next Hundred Years, I wanted to write something that tried to clarify that it was possible to consider the way the world works without ideology. And by ideology, I mean the passionate self-loathing and mutual loathing that permeates much of our discussions. Uh, I wanted a dispassionate book. And I think that passion is much overrated. Everybody has it, and some of it is destructive. Uh, what I try to bring to this is dispassion, and I've asked a simple question. What is the next hundred years going to look like? And I use a methodology for that that we call geopolitics that I certainly won't bore you about. But what I've asked is what really matters? I believe my phone. <laughs> well, the phone matters. <laughs> uh, the question is, what is it that really matters in the next hundred years? If I were sitting at the beginning of the 19th of the 20th century, 1900, and I asked that question, I'd like to think that I would have answered that three things matter in the 20th century. The first is the collapse of the European Empire. Since 1492, Europe dominated the world even while waging an endless, bloody civil war that culminated in some of the most terrible bloodletting humanity has ever seen in the 20th century. I always enjoy when the French advise us on how to be civilized in our foreign policy. <laughs> um, the second thing I hope I would emphasize is the quadrupling of the population of the world. That's never happened before in a century. And the third thing I hope I'd emphasize is the technological revolution in transportation and communication that made that silly device make that sound, its defect, but allows me to have somebody on the ground in, say, Pakistan, pick up the phone and contact me with what's going on and allows me to fly around the world 
in a matter of hours and days, a fundamental transformation of our lives. So sitting here at the beginning of the 20th, 21st century, what would I think is going to be the dominant things? The first is that European empire is being replaced. In 1991, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, for the first time in 500 years, no European power was a global power. That is an extraordinary event. And what replaced it was the United States. And the 21st century, far from being the end of the American era, is the beginning, because the United States is a dominant power of extraordinary proportions. The second thing that I would emphasize is the end of the population explosion. Birth rates are falling everywhere in the world. And in the advanced industrial countries, they fall below replacement. Germany is going to lose 20 to 25% of its population in the next 30 years. That's not a guess. That is a mathematical certainty, uh, given birth rates and what it's had. In the history of the past 500 years, there have always been more workers, more consumers, more soldiers. That will no longer be the case in this world. What that does to real estate prices? <laughs> I don't know, but I know one thing. I would rather be a labor broker than an investment banker in the 21st century because for the past 500 years, the main shortage has been in capital and the main surplus in labor, and that's changing. Coming from that, I would like to be, I would predict that we're going to have a tremendous surge in technology based on labor shortage. The most important thing we have to do is replace missing labor in order to sustain not only an aging population, but productivity of the existing population. Things like medical advances that would allow us to continue to live productive lives. We currently have a uh, retirement system that assumes that people will retire at the age of 65. That retirement system was created at a time when life expectancy was 63 years. <laughs> it was a good bet. No one created that system for people to live till 80 or beyond, especially if in living to 80 and beyond in those 15 years, they are not only non, not productive. <laughs> they are not only not productive, but in fact uh, consuming at an extraordinary high rate of all sorts of care for labor that's not available to give it to them. So while I fully expect to be drooling in my children's living room, something I promised them that I would do, uh, there, there is a revenge we parents can take. Uh, somebody has to wipe it. Uh, all of these will require robots. It's just a simple way of talking of systems that will replace labor. I'd like to think they'd have heads and arms and be really smart, but that's not necessary. 
which means that the demand for energy is going to surge. The idea of conservation of energy is inherently insane in an age of labor shortage because you must replace that labor with machines, machines that do things. And as soon as the machines move, they consume a lot of energy. The question will become, where do we get energy? The obvious source is hydrocarbon, and we can all argue about global warming and anything else. The problem of hydrocarbon energy is it's located in a place where wars can be fought and in straits that can be closed by Iranian mines. This is a problem. Uh, the problem, however, is wherever the oil is, that's where the wars are going to be fought. It's not a pity that it's in the Middle East. It's a pity that it's anywhere. For strategic reasons, the United States both must dominate the energy markets and not be dependent on other countries. The problem of solar energy is that on Earth it would be an ecological disaster uh, to replace or even come close to replacing the amount of energy we consume. You'd have to cover the entire American Southwest just for the United States. I don't mind Arizona, but Nevada has Las Vegas, <laughs> and that's serious. <laughs> Plus, you have the small problem on the face of the earth of night, clouds, and seasons. You know when the days get short? <laughs> Therefore, you have to think about a place where to get energy that doesn't have these things. And the answer to that is fairly clear in space. The United States knows how to build large structures in space. They've already built a fairly useless one, the International Space Station, but they can build useful ones, solar arrays. The technology for getting the energy down to the Earth in terms of microwave radiation is fairly well known. And most importantly, the Department of Defense is ready to fund it. NASA is working on it, and the Department of Defense should fund it. They funded the interstate highway system, most of the telegraph system during the Civil War, and, of course, uh, the Internet. In the United States, DOD is the funding agency of basic R&D and technological uh, applications. And no other country controls space like the United States does. So one can imagine later in the century, if the United States does this, and it will have to do it in my view, uh, it's not a policy advocacy, it's what I think is going to happen, uh, the United States will, in addition to everything else, dominate uh, the energy markets. Imagine the United States with its current power and the power of Saudi Arabia and a really bad attitude. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> Let's talk about the power of the United States, because people like to talk about the decline of the United States. The United States has, depending on how you value the dollar, between 25 and 30 percent of all economic activity in the world. Take it down two points, raise it two points. It is the center of gravity of international economic activity. We get sick, the world gets pneumonia. We have a problem, they stagger. The United States, its wealth and its productivity 
is simply an extraordinary thing when you forget the rhetoric and look at the reality. But there's another thing the United States has. For the first time in human history, a single power controls all of the oceans of the world. If you arrayed all of the navies in the world against the United States, it would not even be an interesting battle. The United States take that for granted, but it has many implications, but here's the most important. We get to invade other people, and they don't invade us. That matters. So if we go to Iraq and get our heads handed to us, they can't come swimming across getting even. The room for maneuver, for error, for mistake in U.S. foreign policy, as well as the ability to project power to control the patterns of international trade, because of the control of the seas, can never be forgotten. The U.S. Navy is the foundation of U.S. national security, and it doesn't seem so only because it's so effective. Think about a power that has 30% of the world's economic activity and the complete control of the sea. Think about a power of this magnitude, and then you understand what the fall of Europe as the center of gravity of the international system meant. What was left standing at the end of it was a country of such massive economic and military strength that it's almost incalculable. Not necessarily the brightest foreign policies, but when you have that much power, you can get in a lot of bar fights and go home at night. <laughs> so let me give you another statistic to try to measure the relative power of the United States. Japan's population density is about 365 people per square kilometer. Germany's is about 260. The population density of the United States, excluding Alaska, is 34 people per square kilometer. When you take this to arable land, you know, land that doesn't look like Fort Worth or something, <laughs> I'm in Dallas, I had to say that. <laughs> uh, when you take that to arable land, the ratios remain the same. That means that where Japan and Germany have a tremendous difficulty in absorbing immigration, Japan doesn't have any, and Europe can never absorb the people that come in, because as one Englishman once said, it's not a question of race, it's a question of space. <laughs> the United States has enormous capacity to absorb immigration. It has an enormous capacity to absorb immigration uh, because there's lots of space. I came to the Bronx. I wound up in Ithaca, New York. I traveled around. I landed in Driftwood, Texas. There is space galore. The ability of American society to absorb immigration in a time of falling birth rates is enormously important. 
where the Germans and the Japanese really cannot effectively regulate their population through immigration except through massive social instability. The United States has for 200 years and longer done that very effectively, crying all the time, mind you. Okay? I mean, the warnings about what the Irish would do to this country <laughs> uh, in the 1840s is breathtaking. Go, go back and look at some of the previous migratory patterns. Um, when you think about that, you realize that this is a tremendous strategic advantage. When you take a look at the United Nations statistics, you see most European countries declining in population, some catastrophically like Russia, some more slowly. Only one advanced industrial power is expected to grow somewhat in population, the United States. That growth does not come from the native population whose reproduction rates are as low as anybody in the world. And the reason for the low reproduction rates are quite simple. In rural populations, if you want to retire and you get to live that long, you need children because nobody else is going to take care of you. And so you have as many children as you can. And traditionally, uh, women would have eight children, half of which four would die before the age of one. Of the remaining four, two would die uh, before puberty, and the last two would reproduce. The women would die in childbirth, which is where, if you read Grimm's fairy tales, uh, there's always the wicked stepmother, because that, in fact, was the process I call it serial polygamy. The women would die in childbirth. The men would marry other women. The other women would try to push the children away. And the nightmare of pre-industrial society was the grandmother, or was the stepmother, I'm sorry. Now, having eight children became a real problem in the 19th and early 20th centuries. They didn't die. <laughs> the advances in health, and you know that your grandparents or great-grandparents had very large families. This is called the oops period, <laughs> where you were expected to reproduce at phenomenal rates to replace dying children, and they didn't die. And that's where the population explosion came. Now, in pre-industrial France, having 10 children made you rich. In Dallas, <laughs> oh boy, it's good. <laughs> children are an article of conspicuous consumption. Those of us who have the need to nurture one can certainly satisfy themselves with one or two at most. <laughs> the need for eight or nine is superfluous. As I like to tell my youngest son, um, he was born as a spare in case the first one didn't work out. <laughs> first one's doing okay. <laughs> You've got a problem. Advanced industrial society puts a penalty on massive reproduction, and so you have all of these falling birth rates where women used to reproduce in their teens. They're now reproducing in their 30s. They're living together you know, without marriage, without, I don't you know, 
one of my kids gets married. They've been living together for six years, and they want a wedding. <laughs> I'll give him a toaster. What do you want? <laughs> but you see a massive shift in the way we live. And so this process is not going to reverse itself. And so immigration remains critical. The idea that, for example, China is going to replace the United States as the great power is really interesting because it's widespread. I went on a book tour around the world, and everybody's talking about the Chinese miracle. Let's put some facts of China on the table. China has about 1.3 billion people. 1,000... All of them live about 1,000 miles from the coast because there's no rain further inland. Uh, the industry is about 100 miles from the coast. 65 million of these, according to the Chinese, live in households that make more than $20,000 a year. 1.3 million, 65. 170 million live in households that make from two to $20,000 a year. 400 million live in households that live in one, make one to $2,000 a year. And 670 million Chinese live in households that make less than $1,000 a year. China is an impoverished third world country with income levels in most of the country that rival those of the poorest countries in the world. Chinese industrialism is a thin veneer, and it is not part of China. China is an extension of the United States, of Australia, of Europe, but particularly of the United States. The things those factories produce cannot be sold in, ch in China for the same reason it could not be sold in sub-Saharan Africa. There is no money, and there is no need for G.I. Joes. <laughs> the things that the Chinese industrial plant produce must be produced by advanced and consumed by advanced industrial countries. Therefore, if we ask the question, what is the Chinese industrial plant, the answer is, it is an extension of the American economy. The United States exported a great deal of its industry, and its greatest export during this recession was unemployment. One of the remarkable things, considering the battering the American economy has taken, is the fact that unemployment is still around 10%. Where did that unemployment go? It went to China. But in China, unemployment does not mean that your 401k is in trouble and you're not talking to your broker. In China, it means malnutrition and even starvation. Because the remittances that go from the illegal migrants into the cities who are working in the factories for 2,000 a year aren't going back to the villages where Families live on $3 a day. China is a country that appears to be a miracle, but which in fact represents 
a traditional model of imbalance, instability, and danger. And if you look at China today, where they lynched a plant manager recently for closing the plant, uh, you understand the desperation that's sweeping China. There is no country that can replace the United States as a world power. This is not because of American virtue. It is not because of Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers. It is not because Ronald Reagan was a great guy. He was, but it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the simple fact that the objective fundamentals of the American economy not only defined the global system, but cannot be replaced. To have a power in decline means there has to be a power that's rising. It's certainly not Europe, divided and shattered into this financial crisis, instead of cooperating as if it were a European Union, each individual country making sure that its money didn't go to any other, the Germans in particular, making sure that they didn't bail out the Italians and the French making sure they didn't bail out anybody. <laughs> the European Union is a fiction, and that fiction was shown in this latest crisis. It does not have a military force. It does not have a unified economic policy. It does not have a centralized government. Russia is reasserting itself, and that's a serious problem in the short run, but in the long run, it isn't. There are three powers that are emerging that we will have to take seriously in the 21st century. The first is Japan. Japan is the second largest economy in the world. It is an economy that may not be growing very quickly, but remarkably doesn't need to grow quickly to be the second largest economy in the world. It has the largest navy in East Asia, an army larger than the British army, and that's why they're disarmed. Imagine if they get serious at it. If China declines, which I fully expect, the dominant power in East Asia is going to be Japan. The second largest power the second power that I think is going to emerge is Turkey. It is today the 17th largest economy in the world. It is the eighth largest in Europe, if you allow us to think of it as a European power for the moment. It is the largest Islamic economy, substantially larger than Saudi Arabia, even in a good year. Its army is not only the best in the region, but I suspect it's the best in Europe, except for the British. And I do dearly wish there was a war between them, because I'd like to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> the Turks are the dominant Islamic power whenever Islam unites. And what we are seeing in all the chaos out there is the emergence of a unification of Islam, but not under the Afghans. We don't normally get to do that. Uh, but the Turks, who not only under the Ottoman Empire, but under the other empires, always dominated. And the Turks, is Muslim or not, 
have always been flexible. And the rise of the Ottoman Empire, they, of course, allied themselves with the Catholic Church, all the while condemning the infidels. They are a subtle people. <laughs> the third power to emerge is going to be Poland, which is now the 18th largest economy in the world and the seventh largest in Europe. And the reason it's going to emerge is because it is a strategic ally of the United States. Russia is reemerging. Poland is the boundary between Russia and Europe. The United States does not want to see Russia and Western Europe amalgamate, and therefore it has an interest in the future of Poland. The ballistic missile defense system does not have to be in Poland. It's not in Poland because we're worried about Iranian missiles. They'd more likely blow themselves up than fire a missile at anybody. It is to declare that the United States has a unilateral relationship outside of NATO with Poland and has the right to put whatever it wants there, including squadrons of F-16s, which have already gone in. The Russians are not worried about a ballistic missile defense system that can knock down one or two missiles. They're worried about the fact that the United States has declared that Poland is uh, a unique relationship to the United States. And you will notice that President Obama, having absolutely condemned the idea of a ballistic missile defense system in Poland, has discovered, in fact, that he's going to leave there for a while. <laughs> because, of course, he's a smart guy, and he understands that Poland is a strategic necessity. Now, why is that important for Poland? South, think of South Korea. In 1950, a nation of rice farmers, and not really good at that either. If you had predicted in 1950 that in the year 2000, South Korea would be a major industrial power and exporter, okay, they would have taken you away to the basement of the CIA for therapy, <laughs> where all good ideas go. <laughs> Poland starts from a much higher level than South Korea or the other example, Israel. When a country is of strategic importance to the United States, the United States does technology transfers, favorable trade relations, foreign aid, and especially the transfer of weapons from which entire generations of technologists emerge. How did South Korea become what it is today? How did Israel become what it is today? It had a special relationship with the United States. Poland, which is already a substantial power in Europe, uh, is a no-brainer once it becomes a strategic ally. The final thing that I'll leave you with is, out of this comes a final power at the end of the century. The 13th largest economy in the world today, 100 million people, a trillion-dollar economy, with 50, between 25 and $40 billion in cash flowing in every year. I'm referring, of course, to Mexico. The world's 13th largest economy, 25 to $40 billion in drug money flowing in every year, Puro. Please notice the lack of liquidity crisis in Mexican banks. 
<laughs> Stroke your beard for a while and wonder how they did that. Um, and please notice that the land that we stole fair and square for the Mexicans in the 1840s is being repopulated with major movements that the United States must encourage in order to solve its labor shortages. Play out a game in which the 13th largest economy becomes the 6th, 5th, or 4th largest economy in, in, 21, in 2080. It becomes a substantial military force, and the political border and the social border are not the same. I have a map in my book that shows you uh, the Mexican presence in what I call the, Me the Mexican session, the region we, the borderland, and noting how intensely the demographics are changing. Like Alsace-Lorraine, uh, the borderland shifts. This is not anti-Mexican, it is not pro-American, it is nothing. It is an observation of a necessary process. So what I foresee is, through the century, an enormous American power constantly challenged by new powers rising. And North America, this prosperous, underpopulated continent, native to both the Atlantic and the Pacific, part of both trading systems, the richest prize of all. We can guarantee then North America will matter. I think we can guarantee for the rest of the century the U.S. will dominate it. But as in Europe, it could dominate the world and yet tear itself apart in civil wars that never ended. So on that basis, the message that I try to deliver in the book is you don't have to argue for or against the United States or engage in policy debates or anything else. The sheer weight of American power makes it the center of gravity of the international system and makes it impossible to replace. Being overwhelmingly powerful does not, however, make you omnipotent or eternal. You will have challenges, and the challengers will be capable and serious. They won't be the ones that worried you in the 20th century. Germany, France, and these other countries are not going to be in the top 10 in 50 years. But that does not mean that there will not be powerful countries emerging. Kind of ticked off of the United States for being what we are, fairly thuggish and unpleasant at times. But that's okay if you can get away with it. That's what geopolitics teaches Moralism is great, and you can enjoy it all you want, but in the end, power matters. And right now, the power is with us, the United States. Let me stop there and ask questions. There, there are mics, I think. Sure. Uh, when you talk about power from the sun and so forth, that, that's not. But a 
about five years ago, the United States supposedly had somewhere 250 or 300 trillion feet of gas, uh, maybe 10 years supply. Now, with all the shells in there, like Marcellus and the Hainesville and the Barnett and all the rest of them have come on like gang buttons. We now have a 120 years supply of natural gas. I'm not, not 10 years, 120 years. And I'm serious, I mean, we've driven the price of gas down to the place, I mean, where it's hardly worth producing. But nevertheless, it's ours, it's here. And it's in the United States, and all we have to do is switch from crude oil to natural gas as fast and best we can. <coughs> I mean, power the generators, power anything with it. We've got far more than anybody knows what to do with, and the rigs are 40% of what they were a year ago. So, and, and, and they're still producing more gas because the wells are better. Okay, but one of the problems is, in this world, having get energy to consume is one thing. What? Having energy to consume is one thing. Controlling the energy that other people consume is another. One of the things that the British did was not only take control of enough oil for themselves, but enough oil to control the international patterns of trade. So the problem of natural gas, aside from the inherent problem of transportation, which you know more about than I do, I'm sure, the problem of natural gas is it doesn't really address the question of how do we control our enemies. One of the most effective ways to control enemies is to control the energy sources. Being able to consume our own energy solves one problem, but that's not what the Department of Defense is worried about, and that's why, not, why NASA has a program for space-based solar energy. We want to produce a inexpensive form of energy that others crave that will allow us to shape their behavior. So energy is a weapon, not just a tool of consumption. I have no doubt that we will be using a great deal of natural gas. The idea of solar-based energy does not mean the exclusion of other sorts. Uh, we always will have a blend. But solar energy allows us to supply others. And I'll give you an example. The Russians currently produce 50% of the natural gas the Germans consume. As a result of that, the Russians have a tremendous influence over German foreign policy. And Frau Merkel goes to Russia to vacation in Sochi. Uh, she needs a lot of vacation. She goes there several times a year. The aspect of energy that matters the most geopolitically is the ability to control who has what. The Germans cannot afford to resist the Russians and side with the United States, and they don't. And what the United States is going to be looking for is a lever to control others. So I totally agree with what you say. I have no doubt that natural gas is going to be a critical energy source in the United States. But there will be other sources developed because energy is a weapon.
Thank you very kindly. Uh, I didn't hear you mention nuclear capability and also India, and it's my understanding that India has a tremendous refining capability. I, I regard India as the next major economic miracle, and it will remain that for centuries. The, we the weakness of India is that it's not one country. It looks that way in a map. But power is so distributed in India that each state has a different pattern of controlling investment and so on. So you can have in Bangalore a tremendous evolution. And two states over, it doesn't happen. It is a complex, difficult country to deal with. It is a for themselves as well. So when you look at India, you really have to stop, th in my mind, stop thinking about India and start disaggregating to the different states. Nuclear weapons, nuclear power has an essential problem. The timeline of bringing it online, 15 to 20 years, means that the probability of hitting the market is dubious. The reason that investors aren't charging into it is because in 20 years you're assuming a level of demand in a particular area that may or may not be there. Uh, it's an extremely high investment, uh, long-term infrastructure project that makes assumptions about demand that can sometimes be surprising. In particular at a time when population is declining, Rushing into large infrastructure projects like that could burn you pretty well. I think that's one of the weaknesses. I think we're going to go into nuclear, just as we're going to go into natural gas. We're going to go into all these things. We are not going to go to a monomaniacal energy source. But nuclear as an alternative, every time you look at it superficially, it looks great. Every time you put your own money into it, it looks a little hairier. And, you know, if your market assumptions are right, it's great. If the market grows faster, that's fantastic. When the demand isn't there down the road. What role do you see uh, Brazil playing in the future? You didn't mention them as a power. Brazil is certainly going to be, is, a major economic power. It is not a major geopolitical power because of its location. It certainly has the ability to dominate Paraguay. And Bolivia trembles even as we speak. <laughs> but it's a happy country. It's a happy country in the sense that it is really an isolated country. Because if you take a look at a map, and I've got one in the book, that shows Latin America. Brazil is a, a kind of crescent-shaped island separated by mountains and a jungle to the west. Separated from Venezuela by jungle. And kind of having a small relationship with Uruguay and Argentina, okay? And within that triangle, it has performed extraordinarily well, and I think will continue to do so. But it will not be one of the hands on the scale of the 21st century, simply because of its geographical position. Japan and China. <clears throat> I think we're familiar with the 
painful history between those two countries, but in the next 100 years, can you see the possibility or probability of a military alliance between the two? And, and if so, what is the indications for us? I see something else. Japan is losing its population. The graying of the population is followed by the losing of the population. It has a labor shortage and is incapable of importing labor for cultural and other reasons. The traditional solution for the Japanese is not to import labor to, but to export its factories and move its factories to where the labor is located, which is what it did in the 1920s and 1930s. The natural location for this labor is China. We are going, I think, to be seeing a period in which the central government of China loses control to a degree over the country, which is to say the interior of the country where most people live will be demanding that money be transferred from the coast to the interior. The coastal region has its interests far more in common with the United States or Europe than it does with the rest of China. And it has, in Shanghai and other places, uh, parties that really don't want to do that, which is why the mayor of Shanghai a year ago, two years ago now, uh, and his entire staff was arrested and not seen again. <laughs> uh, the reason this happened was because Shanghai tried to resist Beijing. Now, Beijing is balancing between a billion point one people starving, not starving at this point, but on the brink of it, and a coastal region that is essentially an extension of the Western economics economies. My expectation is that the last time this happened was after the Opium Wars when the British kicked the door in and started the game going. Uh, China fell to chaos. Uh, we would have never expected after Mao that China would have turned the way it has. We should not expect this to be eternal. There are tensions in China that are tremendous. There are needs in Japan for labor that are substantial. The, na the historical process has been a Japanese presence in China that eventually reaches resistance. But I see very little in common in their interests, which the Chinese say, and the Japanese just don't talk about because it never happened. The Japanese foreign policy right now is I'm a little black rain cloud hovering over the honey tree. Pay no attention to little me. And they've pulled it off. But they're running out of room in their maneuvers, both in terms of their financial system and in terms of their demographics. They're going to have to make a move soon. What about the impact of uh, biotech on geopolitics in the next 100 years? Well, from a geopolitical point of view, the place that biotech matters is in the ability to allow people to be productive for whatever length of time they have. We don't nearly need life extension as much as continued productivity into the 70s and 80s. So where I think the geopolitical effect comes, the first effect of biotech was, of course, reducing the birth rate, as I've tried to show how the end of uh, infant mortality just 
screwed the entire system up. Now it's time for biotech to fix that by uh, allowing old age to be productive so that we don't have to have vast transfers of wealth to them. Remember one thing that I want to just point out. Today in our society, people go to school to the mid-20s sometimes, quite commonly. They retire at 65. They live to 80. That means for half of their lives, they're consumers, not producers. They're completely nonproductive in their school, okay? And they're completely nonproductive, let's say, after 65. It's not quite true, but... Our problem is that for 50% of our lives, we've created a system where people are nonproductive. Our complexity of our society requires that much... I'm not sure it requires that much schooling, but it requires a lot of schooling. All right? So you can't really tweak that back all that much. It's on the other side that you've got to do something. And that really is where biotech comes in. And whichever country can solve that problem, it's almost as good as having energy. So that, that becomes a strategic weapon. If you look at the period from 1840 to 1940, the changes in the U.S. were pretty extreme from a, a military growth, economic transformation, social changes that I think very few people would have expected or predicted in 1840. So couldn't those sorts of unexpected changes materialize, say, in Europe or in various part, regions of the world, just as they did in the United States? Well, I mean, it's not true that people didn't expect it. Alexander de Tocqueville wrote a book, Democracy in America, where he just laid it out uh, exactly what would happen. The task of geopolitics is to identify the possible and exclude the impossible. The selection that I made of Japan, Turkey, and Poland, okay, in fact says, okay, this is the future of Poland, this is the future of Europe, this is the future of uh, the Islamic world, this is the future of Asia. And it takes into account reasons why they would do it. But there is a tremendous element to overcome for the United States. First, in 1980, trans-Pacific trade first equaled transatlantic trade. That meant that any nation native to both has a tremendous advantage commercially and militarily. Neither Europe nor Asia have that advantage. North America does. Second, North America is more efficient in metabolizing immigration. That's a tremendous advantage, and that has to do with population density, not that we're such a welcoming people. We may be, but that's not the key. The third is that the United States has a military advantage that's unchallenged. The Europeans didn't. France, Britain was always challenged in some way. So, I mean, it's hard for me to... You know, to answer that question, it's the right question. Is there something unexpected? That can't be answered abstractly. And what to me is the most interesting thing, and what I tried to do is, look, you go to the beginning of, the, of 1800, and you say, did people predict this for the United States? And the answer is, yeah, some very famous ones, Tocqueville and so on. In 1900, did people predict the decline of 
the European Empire. Yeah, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, and also Rudyard Kipling, who wrote a poem called Recessional that was a warning to anyone who wanted to listen of what was coming. Did anybody predict the world wars? Yeah, H.G. Wells, who wrote some extraordinary books describing tank warfare and stuff like that. What I've tried to do in my book is try to understand why these guys got it right and why others got it wrong and try to create a system, a theory, that allows me to integrate this together. I don't know that I did it right. Um, I'll be dead by the time anybody knows it. <laughs> I found a new business model. Make predictions that cannot be validated and charge for them. <laughs> But nevertheless, uh, you know, I'll make the case that there are people who could predict those things. They were not unexpected. And I think what I've tried to do, for better or worse, is to use those methods. And the essence of what I do is I'm really stupid. And that's, the, by the way, the, the motto of Stratfor. One of the things we teach everybody, be stupid. And by that I mean... When you predict the decline of the United States, take a look at what you're predicting. <laughs> you know, 30% of the world's economy going down to 10%, 5%, 7%. How does it get there? There are many sophisticated people with many sophisticated arguments over many sophisticated things. Their weakness is they're not stupid. <laughs> and if they were stupid, they would ask the obvious. And in what I try to do in doing this is ask the obvious question, and I get some fairly surprising answers. I doubt very much that you would have expected I would say that Poland, Mexico, Turkey, and Japan were going to be great powers. So I'm trying to look for the unexpected. But, you know, as when you play the stock market, at a certain point you've got to put your money down. And the money I put down is, you know, my reputation, long after I'm dead, thank God. <laughs> uh, and a method that tries to explain the decisions I made as to what's going to happen and what's not. So I appreciate what you're saying. It's just, I've lived in that for 30 years now, with some general looking at me and saying, look, I need an answer now. And I've found that in the 30 years, being really dumb worked a lot better than being really smart. <laughs> For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.